Take our Bibles, please, and open to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, please. I'll be reading the first 12 verses, if you would follow along. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offends not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, and they that they may obey us, and we turn about the whole body. Behold also ships, which, though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, How great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So the tongue is among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which is made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Prayer. God, to bless these words to our hearts today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that we have to meet together. Beginning a new week in your house is ours We're recipients of tremendous grace, and not the least of which is your presence with us here and your word as it is illuminated before us, as it provides us with guidance and direction, as it is our standard of faith and truth. May, Father, we not only receive it with the ears, but even as James has written, that we might be a doer of the word. We're thankful, Father, that has spoken to us with clarity in the past, And we have the confidence that as our hearts are yielded, your spirit would lead us to understand and provide great clarity even to our passage today. Thank you for your presence and your guiding spirit. May we honor you in thought, word, and deed in Christ's name. Amen. I have a a Gallup poll. It was the end of 2021. It was called Honesty and Ethics of Professions Ranking. And they've given 21 professions. This is a cross set of populations of where they put, they feel that people are being honest and, and trustworthy. Um, uh, the first one, can you guess what they felt? Be 
being the most honest and trustworthy profession. Medical doctors, right? No, that's it. That don't chuckle. It gets even better. Grade school teachers, pharmacists, the first three, military officers, police officers. Can you guess what was at the bottom of the list? Car salesman. It was close. That was the <laughs> lobbyist. Was the twenty-one car salespeople? Uh, Should be used car sales. Um, then nineteen was members of Congress. <laughs> Advertising practitioners, state office holders, TV reporters, business executives, newspaper reporters, lawyers, uh, local officials, office holders, nursing home operators, bankers, auto mechanics, clergy. Number eight, just below judges. Um, they commented on uh, within this survey. They said the clergy's new low is the continuation of a two-decade slide, including a three-point slip since last year and a six-point slip since 2017. Longer-term clergy's image has diminished among a majority of both party groups, most likely related to the broader societal trend of a reduced religiosity. In earlier decades, clergy were among the best-rated professions for their honesty and ethics, with the highest rating of 67% recorded in 1985. But a series of sexual abuse scandals over the years, including the recent 2018, uh, along with a steep decline in Americans' religiosity, has undermined public trust in that profession. Not surprising, you know. But that's the world's view as to clergy, you know. I, for the most part, think that we as Christians have a much higher view of the clergy. Uh, it was through their ministry, in essence, that we came to know Christ the Savior. Um, it is, they are the people to whom we call upon. And, Pastor, I've got this need. What does the word say? I'm hurting. You know, can you help with this or whatever? They want your opinions on just about everything, which most of the time we're not able to comment on, but that's always asked. And, and you're required to present uh, so much and so much and so much. Unfortunately, I think it's often true that we create problems for ourselves when we place them on a pedestal, when we presume them to be a professional clergy uh, higher above everybody else's spirituality and that they have all the answers. And when they fall, e the house of cards, you know, everything has gone bad. I think as we read the New Testament, it's easy to understand why many in the early church favored being teachers and preachers. It was an honorable profession. You were able to reach great scores of people, helping them out, uh, giving direction and and providing with uh, truth. Many professing believers, Christian faith, were busy teaching. The Apostle Paul writes the church at Corinth, and he says, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, now, a little hyperbole there, you know, they didn't have 10,000, but Paul is saying, you know, look around you. Uh, even in his time, there were many teachers, many teachers, many professing leaders within the church. 
And he says, that's all part of it. Yet I think the reality was is that they needed to test that zeal. Just because everybody was excited to do something didn't necessarily mean that they were qualified to do it. Not everyone who entered at that time or even today gospel ministry was actually called of God. And so there had to be a, a testing and an understanding to be cautious about their thinking in taking up a preaching office. Verse 1, Paul or James says, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. They'll be judged heavier. The weight of those in the, in the pulpit ministries, teaching ministries of the gospel, are indeed judged more strictly. And I think the picture that we have here before us in these passages is the matter of words and accountability for words. And as we think about it, it's most important. I think James, as we'd seen earlier and commented on the beginning of this book, that James used uh, the words of Jesus and he used the words of the Old Testament because that was what the people were familiar with. And Jesus said, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Wow. That's a fearful picture. I think James picks up on that. And for the pastor teacher, his business is of words. Many churches, pastor fills the pulpit uh, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Throughout the week, uh, Bible studies, uh, home, uh, home, home visitations, and the word comes out. His ministry is of words. Whether it's giving counsel, whether it's just uh, answering questions, they are there. And I think the understanding of what James is presenting here is that the potential of misleading others is far greater in the pulpit ministry to the pastor teacher than anybody else because of the influence and the relationship that he has with other people. The opportunities to fail are right there. The pastor teacher will be called upon to give an account not only of his own failures one day before the Lord, but to give an account for those that he has led astray. And I think that's going to be a fearful day for many. Yet, should be no surprise here that James makes a quick transition from the pastor teacher to all Christians. To all Christians. And I think he had to start out this with, with that understanding of those who were leading the pulpit or leading the teaching ministry. But he falls into this natural picture. James basically says, don't take comfort at the fact that uh, you're awaiting judgment for those who are teaching falsely because it's really all upon us. He says, for in many things we offend all. Offense coming. Uh, this word here that he's presented here of, of offending could be more properly understood as stumbling. Do you ever stumble? You know, once in a while I get a pair of shoes that have a more of a grip on it, and I go down the sidewalk <clears throat> like that, and Mama looks at me and she says, "Are you okay?" You know, it's more embarrassing. You know, you think everybody saw me when I tripped and when I stumbled like that. Uh, the 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 eyes of everybody were upon you. Yet what he presents unto here, because it is a blow to our pride. 
It's much more than that. I think there's another kind of stumbling that we really stumble at, even breaking our necks. A greater stumble. What happened to David as he stood up upon the top of the palace and he looks down and he sees? And that ends up being a disaster. Or Moses, he gets out and he's transitioning from the tent with the Lord to the rock and all of a sudden he blows his stack and strikes the rock. You know, he stumbled. David stumbled. They created an offense, and it not only affected that moment, but it affected the lives of many, many others. James says, we all stumble, every one of us, and he's raising his hand. He says, I'm amongst you. We, we all stumble. He walks in harmony with every Christian. For James was under the same royal law as everybody is. God's evaluation doesn't look upon anybody any differently simply because he's a disciple, an apostle, a pastor, or anything. But the royal law is before him. But James was with the Lord for 30 years. You know, personal relationships. He was looked very highly. Look at the book of Acts and the relationship he had with the church. Honorable. Big position there. Yet with that authority, he stumbled. But I think the key is that he made no attempt to disguise it. It's somebody else's fault. Or that was just something I didn't quite understand. We all offend, he says, for in many things we offend all. This is how it is for everyone. There's nobody, no, not one person who can say, I've not stumbled. Check out our plaques up here. And we analyze it, and we say, well, that's the Old Testament law. But nonetheless, God's holding it up before us, and he's saying, this is a standard. And how do we fit with it? Man, you know, how do we fit with with the relationships between our fellow man and ourselves, or a holy God? So it's no wonder James lays this out before us all. can no longer look at our society and say, well, It's not only me, but the society that I lived in. Drawing upon a little from our Sunday school this morning, there's one statistic that kind of throws it into perspective. The USA, three years ago, one in five, one in five, one in five pregnancies ended in an abortion. I'm not sure how long it'll take to get an honest assessment of that relationship after the Supreme Court's judgment, you know. But the picture that's drawn upon that and those who are in positions of responsibility, not only as lawmakers, but people who participate in that, it weighs heavy upon the breaking of the moral fiber of the people. In many things, we all offend. There's an offense there, and the power of the offense in this isn't limited to them because I guarantee that those who were responsible and continue to be in the responsibility of these very same things. Don't offend just there, but the offense continues on throughout life in so many areas. Yet, do you acknowledge this too? I don't mean to say the phrase, oh, we all sin, and I've heard that many times. Catch somebody and they're in an offense and they come, ah, but I'm nobody's perfect, you know, nobody's perfect. But is there an acknowledgement, an understanding of what James presents here? 
Yes, I do offend in many ways. It's the words of an old hymn. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the preacher, not the deacon, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my father, nor not my mother, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the stranger, not my neighbor, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. James points it out, he writes it down, and he says, I want you to listen, but I'm included in that. The necessity to recognize how we offend all in so many ways. Or, does your stumble fail to phase you? And I don't mean walking across the parking lot and having that little crack in the sidewalk and you go like that. I'm saying from the heart. Those things that you've done and find and offended. Are you a stranger to shame? Because brethren, there is a great day of evaluation coming. Our lives are going to be inspected by a God who has sustained us and blessed us and provided for us countless, countless ways, day in and day out. We call it grace. We call it mercy. We call it love. Yet there's an evaluation that we will have to stand before him someday for our stumblings, for our failings. James remind us that we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Wesley wrote that down because that was his heart. You know what? It's our words that give it away. They give the game away. Our words show the true state of our heart. The evaluation of it. <laughs> Living in the day that we have where everybody's got a cell phone or everybody's got a recorder, you know. And it's been really prominent over, say, the past 20 years or whatever, Anybody said anything in those times and to come along and say, oh, listen to this, but you said this, and you said, listen to that, yeah, 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 you caught him, you know. But think of how that goes. Words. Don't point the finger, the wild words of some wackadoodle evangelist or some cult leader, because they have their own judgments waiting. But what about your words? Think about it. It's not merely the air that's passing through your larynx and your your lips that comes out in some form that is maybe understandable or maybe not. Just sounds. Crucify him. Release unto us Barabbas. Just words. Just sounds. They came from the heart, and they produced actions. Think of the words of a spy or a liar. Think of the words of a seducer or a racist or an unfaithful spouse. Well, they were just words. But no, the words were bound within the heart, and they were tied within the actions, and they displayed something of that revelation. 
Think of what you've said to those whom you love the most. The ones you depend upon the most. Hateful words or angry words. Words that were showing impatience. Unliving words, harsh words, cruel words. Rules become the barometer of the heart. And sometimes the strength of what those words come out really show there's something twisted here that's not right. But they're just words. No, they're not words. They're much more than that. It is by our lips that we are condemned. For our words are displaying the corruption of our heart. James says, for in many things we offend all. And there's an accountability for words. Accountability for words. His passage continues on, not only speaking of this matter of accountability, but he talks about words and influence. How they influence in life. And he comes to us with some really easy to understand illustrations. And oftentimes these passages are used to in, in, in preaching and so forth. But uh, take them on. He begins with verse 3 and the horse. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Before vandals came, this is a number of years ago, and burned my uncle's barn down, I used to remember as a boy going in there and seeing a plethora of horse uh, equipment, you know, uh, stuff that was used in a former day by the farmers of that property. Uh, harnesses and, and uh, huge wooden wheels and all this kind of stuff. And I could only imagine uh, what it was like hooking up these teams and pulling steel and wood, which is today uh, classified over to use of a tractor, you know. Um, and, and there they were. They were all gone. But it just brought my imagination uh, of, of great turn. And the power of it, though, really never set into me. But that six-inch bit that ran through that horse's mouth. And as he would take the reins and he would pull to the right, the horse turned to the right. Or the team turned to the right. Or as he pulled to the left, the horse would turn to the left. Just not his head. But his whole body moved with that. With that small indicator. Just the whole thing, the whole shift of everything moved to the left or to the right, did as according to the man who was behind the reins. Verse 4, Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Little old English words there, helm, the rudder, the governor, the guy who's behind the, the wheel, in other words, steering the ship. In 76, we were in Philadelphia for the bicentennial tall ships. Did any of you get to see that coming up the river? Oh, man, it was fantastic. We saw a lot of them coming up the Delaware, and then we had an opportunity. Uh, one man, our former president in the mission board, uh, his son was in the uh, Chilean uh, Navy, and the Chileans had their, their big sail ship there, so we had an opportunity to get down there, and they took our son aboard and so forth. And I just stood in awe of this. You know, it's huge. You don't think of sailing ships, you know, as, as like that. And I can envision uh, these huge ships, 
and all of these masts filled with sails and out on the ocean, plying away and the waves and everything going on it. And here's one man sitting there at the wheel, turning it. And all of a sudden it turns a rudder. And contrary to the winds, or with the use of the winds, or contrary to the waves, or the use of the waves, and, and he moves the ship back and forth, and eventually reaching its intended destinations. Our tongues, indeed, are involved in such. James gives these influences of the tongue, I think, to sober us, to understand the great things that are taking place. Um, You've seen the fires down in Chile, uh, Argentina. Uh, the Drans left on Thursday, I think it was, the 9th. And Paul contacted the office and he says, we're leaving now to head up to Santiago to catch a plane out. And he said, the embers, smoke and all of that are coming our way. Uh, huge fires burning in Xi'an and, and some around some of the church areas like that. It's reminiscent of what took place in California or the annual <laughs> burning off of California, you know, and other areas like that. Powerful, strong and powerful as these fires are. Uh, reading what they talked about in Chile and Argentina, they said it was a climate change and the Pacific Ocean's La Nina. They blame it on whatever, but it begins with a what? A spark. It begins with one spark somewhere. It provides such. James is saying, think of the damage the tongue can do. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. How does a dictator achieve his power? Yeah, with some guns and some, you know, loyal, but it begins in his mouth, doesn't it? It's what he lies he speaks. You watch the, the, the old films of, of Hitler in front of the people, you know, or Mao Zedong, you know, Stalin, and they talk powerfully it all comes from the heart, but it comes out the mouth, the tongue. And before long, there are millions that are dead, and there are people that are starving, and, and, and countries have gone bankrupt, or whatever, all because of that little member. Daniel is speaking about the appearance of the Antichrist, and he talks about him as being a, a man of great boasting, characterized by this. Listen, he shall exalt himself, and magnify himself above every god. Not meaning gods, you know, spiritually, meaning about, above people. Magnify himself. How is he going to do that? Well, obviously with his mouth. And shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. He will gain massive influence over the world by what? Words. His mouth. Influence. James goes on and gives these clear examples of the tongue's influence, I think, to soberly help us to understand the consequences of having an evil tongue. He provides such. There's hardly a greater indication of man's depravity. Verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is a set on, 
set on fire of hell. Oh, it's not much, but it's big, powerful. Listen to the psalmist. They have sharpened their tongue like a serpent. Like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Paul says, I like that because I see it here. And Paul takes it in Romans. Their throat is an open sepulcher. And their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Proof that there is none righteous because of what, what pours out of the mouth, the power, the influence of evil. He talks about this with no uncertain terms. The evil of our world is concentrate, concentrated in our tongues. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are these, manifest. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, sedition, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Our tongues are involved in every single one. They're part and parcel of society, part and parcel of human beings, nature, that we are. Think of the filth and blasphemy that fills the air. Take a 25-mile radius. Anybody come from outside of us? Anybody come from farther than 25 miles to church? Okay. How far? 46 miles. Okay. Well, even better then. Take 46-mile radius from the church and draw around to think of the filth and the blasphemy that exudes out of the mouths of people every single minute within that radius. And it goes to heaven. And God hears it. And he understands that these people, just within this small circle, that's how they talk about it. That's the, uh, the, the heart that they are revealing. And some of those amongst them, there are people who profess understanding me and knowing me. But this is what he hears constantly. This is what is before his throne of grace on a regular basis. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. Again, our that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. James says that the tongue's influence defiles the whole body. It corrupts the person. It shows forth the heart of man. We're running a little bit late out of this, so I want to look at this final section and then draw some conclusions. Look beginning here at Verse 7, and James really kind of ties it up. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of the things of the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, 
and therewith curse we man, which is made of, after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth a blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain yield salt water and fresh. Those vines and figs and so forth, maybe they felt that they were bearing vines and figs, but they really felt inside that they weren't really that. Maybe they thought they were something else. In the world of which we live. You know, I think the tongue is an enigma for the Christian. We speak some horribly offensive words at times, and yet we can show the utmost piety as we are in other situations. James says, control of such a things, we do it with everything else in the world. And if we can't, we find a way to stop it. But he says, of the tongue, and again, it's just not the member, it's sourced within the heart. He says, we can't tame it. We can't do anything. And he says, this just doesn't seem to be right. So what do we do? In the summer of 71, I recall being on the flight line over at, at uh, QB Point in the Philippines, working on the plane, and coming into the hangar was an old friend of mine. We had been together for a couple of years, and his ship came over later on, and, and finally we met, and man, it was, I was just elated to see him. And the words that I used to welcome him, he kind of he stepped back, and he says, whoa, <laughs> why are you talking like that? The language that I was using was really filthy. But because there was no check, no governor, no limit to what it was, it was natural for me to do it. I had found myself in a surroundings in situations where it was completely understandable. We all talk like that. And he came in, he says, you know, back off on that. It really kind of knocked him for a loop. I didn't talk like that because I was angry, because it was just ordinary conversation. It was my nature, and I couldn't go against it. Well, until I was redeemed, until I was born again by the precious blood of Christ, that language could not change. But once Christ resided in me, my nature had changed, I became born again, And I had the ability to do that which beforehand was impossible to make such a change where the abundance of the words showed the action of the spirit inside. Obviously, it wasn't eliminated, you know, because I still struggle at times with what I say, whether it's a matter of temper or whether it's a matter of just some exclamation or it's something or whatever, but it is something that... is, is worked out in time because the Spirit of God works in us to make that change. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Out of the fullness of the heart, out of what the heart has, what the heart is, it speaks. And you know, the longer you're with people, you see that. You know, um, uh, with my wife, with us, you know, with together, she, she knows me uh, at times better than I know myself. And I know her uh, 
been together more than she's with her parents or anybody else. We know each other. And so we see those changes and we see the things that take place. And out of the heart, as the heart changes. I think of our little children and how at times we train them and constantly encourage them to speak the truth, to be honest. Um, it, a side note, it burdens me when I see these little Instagram things and, and they have some little kid there and you say, okay, say this word and she'll come out and she can't say it, you know, but what comes out is a, f- a foul word, a pornogra- pornographic word. And, 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 and they all laugh at her and she, oh, you know, like that. Teaching and training to do such. You know, uh, another one, there was a kindergarten class, and they're all in there. They're probably 20 little kids, little guys, you know. And the teacher comes up, and the parents were around the edge of the room, and the teacher comes up, and she says, good morning, kids, da-da-da-da. And this one little guy stands up, and he says, blank you, teacher. And they go, David, you shouldn't be saying that. He says, blank you, blank you know? Now, where did he pick it up? He was trained. He was seasoned. He was learning it. But his nature made him do it. And so, as the nature changes, indeed, that has to be changed. Our natures must be altered. And it begins with a new birth, where everything is made new and continues as our daily walk with the Lord day by day. Third stanza of Francis Havergale's hymn goes like this. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee, filled with messages for thee. We're accountable, brethren. Our words have great power. Our words have great influence. And they can be for good. Think of the words of Christ. Think of the, the ministry that the words of Christ had to those who hated him, to those who were lonely, those who were lost, those who were in pain, those who struggled. He gave comfort and hope, and he lifted them up in the hardest of times. Think how the words of Christ speak to us, not in condemnation, but in truth. Evaluate our words. Make sure that we understand how powerful they are and the influences that they have. So what comes out of my mouth does reflect a heart that is right with the Lord. And if it's not, say, Lord, make these changes. Take my voice. uh, Take my lips. Lord, take my heart for thee. Let's pray. Father, you look upon us with favor. And in human terms, we think sometimes you look upon us and you shake your head and wonder what's happening. Why are they acting like this? Why do they say this? Why do they do this? Why did they go there? Why did they engage in this or that? Yet you know our nature. You know that we are sinners saved by grace. And that they were in a process of being sanctified, being changed from what we had been one day without you to become the people you would have us to be. Continue, Father, in your patience with us, your long-suffering. That the simple things that come out of our lips will be words that we can speak anywhere. Words that will honor you. Words that will fill uh, joy and blessing in the hearts of others. 
Words that will not receive condemnation and judgment one day, but words that will be responded by, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Father, for the joy that we have in your word and for these passages that James provides for us. It's a matter of a testing of our faith. May our faith continue to grow in thee, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.